You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn, your host, back with another episode. Uh, I have with me today Greg Renoff coming from Tulsa. Uh, this is recorded over Zoom, so that's why I say Greg's coming from Tulsa. Um, Greg, thanks for joining me today, mate. Really looking forward to diving into to everything you do and and in, especially the the book that you wrote. Um, just finished listening to the audio book, and it's fascinating how how you know about Van Halen and how they didn't make it sooner. But I'm sure we're gonna dive into that. Um, but yeah, for everyone listening, obviously, thanks for coming on and, and tell us a little bit about about you and, and why you're in Tulsa. Well, so I was born back in the back east. I was born in the Bronx and uh, then I grew up in New Jersey and uh, I am a historian by training, a U.S. historian. I went to a grad school in Boston at Brandeis and did my Ph.D. there. Prior to that, I did my master's in uh, American history at University of Mississippi in Oxford. And uh, when I went on the job market, I ended up getting a job at a school in Springfield, Missouri, uh, Drury University, which is a liberal arts university there. Mm-hmm. And uh, met my wife, then would become my wife there. And she was working at a, a school across town. And we ended up moving to Tulsa when she took a job at University of Tulsa. So if you had asked me when I was 16, if I was going to live in Oklahoma, I would have laughed hysterically and said, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Of course, I'm not going to live in Oklahoma. I've never been to Oklahoma, but uh, life takes you to strange places, as you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, in uh, in the middle of the country. Yeah. And so what year was that when you came to Tulsa? Uh, I came here in 2008 okay. for the first time. And then we, I think my wife and I moved here, if I recall correctly, in 2009. I think yeah. that's right. 2008. Yeah. So, uh, been here a little more than a decade. Yeah. But I've seen, seen some change, but also been a part of the change as well, which is kind of nice. And sure. Yeah. The gathering place is an awesome spot now. And the mayor is doing a great job of getting more money and more businesses in. And it's, uh, it's a neat place for sure. And every time I enjoy going, you know, coming to Tulsa and eating at great restaurants and staying at awesome hotels and definitely beats the architecture of Oklahoma city for sure. Yeah. It's different. I mean, it's, you know, uh, <laughs> When I first came to Oklahoma, it's the, the the short version, which is of course the ultimate cliche, is that Tulsa's old money and Oklahoma City's new money, and you know there's probably a, some grain of truth to that in a lot in some ways, you know, especially with the architecture, you can really see when the money was made in Oklahoma, in Tulsa in the 1920s from all the Great Art Deco, and it's uh, it is a really a great small small city. Uh, I think we both know there's things we would like to change about it, but uh, all things considered, uh, I've really enjoyed living here. I miss my family. They're back East. Uh, but I think as far as if you're going to move to a city in the middle part of the country, I definitely would urge anybody who was thinking about it, you know, has some flexibility that Tulsa is a really great place. It's got a, you know, as you mentioned, the arts district downtown, which used to be called the Brady district has a uh, great restaurants and uh, brew pubs, of course, Kings ballroom, the now the Tulsa theater, former Brady theater. And there's really a, uh, I think a real sense or in the cusp of something new and exciting. The okay. Pop museum will open, I think later this year, I think it's going to open uh, if all goes well. And that's going to be a real, uh, I think, a big tourist attraction, uh, bring a lot of people into downtown. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been, you know, being here has been great, all things considered. Yeah. So tell me about the history thing. Growing up, were you super into history and and just naturally loved getting in, especially, you know, obviously U.S. history and 
Yes. Yeah. My dad. So my dad was a professor. He was a sociologist and there were always lots of books around. And he was one of these guys who, uh, you know, would would rather be sitting in a library and and doing research or anything else. I mean, actually, when I was a kid, it's kind of funny. You know, we would go to either go to baseball games. He was a big Mets fan back in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, he would go we would go to Mets games with him or he'd want to go to the library. We went to New York City Public Library quite a bit when I was a kid, which was great. I mean, it was a a real um, formative experience for me to do that on a regular basis. And, you know, and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't think when I was younger, I had all sorts of different things I was going to be. I didn't think I was going to be a historian when I was eight years old, for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, as I got through college and started getting through college and finishing up college, I decided that I was going to, you know, maybe had wanted to be a historian. And uh, that's where that, you know, that, that drive came from. And it was something I was always, uh, really comfortable with and enjoyed, which was just studying or reading about the past. I mean, that was always my favorite, my favorite um, thing to read about was, was history. And so, yeah. And uh, you know, the other thing, of course, my other passion was, was, was music, uh, rock music, particularly I played a little bit of guitar in, in high school. I always say I was like the ultimate intermediate guitar player. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, I just like kind of got to intermediate level. And I really, really tried. I just never could progress by it. But um you know, went to uh, tons of shows in the eighties to see great bands. Like, you know, everyone from, we talked about Guns N' Roses to Van Halen to Stevie Ray Vaughan, we don't go on and on to see these great guitar players. I, um, I loved, and uh, yeah, those two things eventually came together for me, the history and the music. And uh, I ended up writing those, those, those two books, uh, one on the producer, Ted Templeman, who produced Dewey Brothers and Van Halen and Little Feet and a number of other big acts. And uh, then of course the Van Halen Rising book. Yeah. So what with the with like the rock and roll and, and the heavy metal music, what was like your first introduction to that? Did dad like it or was it more of like a high school friend? <laughs> no, it's, I, it's funny. I have a I have an uncle. This would be my mother's brother who uh, and this is about 1977 or 78. He 77 for sure. He had run into a little bit of uh, personal trouble and ended up being basically uh, he moved in with my uh, my mom and my dad and us. And this is in Queens in New York. And my dad wasn't really thrilled about it, but my uncle was kind of, as I say, like to say the cool uncle who I, you know, I went into the room when I was a kid, his room, he was, you know, he was living in the spare bedroom. I think he had a job. I don't remember. He may not have had a job, but he was sort of around a lot. And uh, I remember when he was in his room and I saw something laying out on the table and I went to my dad. I said, why does Uncle Tommy have a smoke, a little pipe and you have a big pipe? You know, one of those things. So he was the cool uncle and he uh, he didn't get me high when I was eight. God bless him. But he did uh, introduce me to. Um, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Mountain and talked about the doors a little bit and talked about the Allen brothers. And, uh, you know, I didn't really, that didn't really look, um, I think sink in until later, you know, I, I, you know, kind of listened to whatever was on the radio. It wasn't as if I immediately went out and started buying, uh, you know, Leslie West records or something to listen to Mountain or, but, um, it all kind of, you know, he kind of turned me on to hard, you know, hard guitar. He had a like Rolling Stones record and between the buttons and he had a Hendrix record and, you know, he sort of like, you know, exposed me to it. And then, but, uh, 1984, I heard Van Halen for the first time. And that really, that was really the group, you know, a couple of those, a quiet ride and a couple of other groups that really got me interested in kind of, for lack of a better term, what we call pop metal or hard rock. And then I went back and listened to things like Zeppelin and Sabbath and Deep Purple and things, you know, got the first, first Black Sabbath record, you know, you know, you had to go to the, get the tape of Zeppelin four and then what Zeppelin album am I going to get next? Zeppelin one. And then, you know, then you're like, Oh, which one do I get after that? And then you get presents and, you know, kind of get, you know, have a tape collection. And that was sort of my, my thing. And then going to concerts, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, 
that was, you know, growing up in New Jersey, that was a great place to have that experience because there were uh, a lot of good venues there. And of course the giant stadium and especially the Meadowlands where you have, you know, basically every major tour, you know, it's, it's, it's the Northeast, it's new, uh, the tri-state area, any, basically any tour was going to come through there. You wanted to see him. Uh, needless to say, as a 16 year old, I didn't have access to like go to any show I wanted to, but I, you know, I could, you know, pick out, pick and choose the couple of shows you'd want to see in the summer, maybe three concerts you get to go to, you could afford it and go. And, you know, I got to see some really cool, um, cool bands and go to the, you know, places like the Reds in New York once I went and, you know, um, just really, uh, was able to indulge that. And then, uh, but you know, life goes on and I went off to grad school and I was kind of a, uh, a person who that was, you know, as a fan of that, but I, you know, I wasn't quite as able to indulge that, that habit as you're, you know, a poor graduate student, stuff like that. So. Yeah. That's one of the things that like, I mean, obviously living in the middle of the country in Oklahoma city in Tulsa, like, yeah, you know, the BOK gets tours come through and the Thunder Arena, which apparently is terrible for sound. I didn't know that, but that's what I've heard. Uh, you know, and Kane's, I've been to see Gary Clark Jr. at Kane's a couple of times that he's been there. Right. And it's just fantastic. But right. it's one of the things that, like, I wish that we could get more, right, is people coming to Oklahoma City or coming to Tulsa <laughs> right. playing. Right. It's like, it's the one thing that we kind of, like, lack, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the one the one challenge for that is that you have, you know, if you think about this part of the country, you, you, it was when I lived in Springfield, Missouri, it was worse because Springfield, Missouri, we get you know we get like um, Blackberry Smoke would come through and play, and some other bands would come through, but often oftentimes they'd get leapfrog. It was either Kansas City. Obviously for you know, Kansas City or St. Louis for bigger bigger acts, and you know a lot of times Lawrence, a lot of groups. You know, I I'm a big. Uh, I like a lot of types of music, but I do like um, heavy metal quite a bit. And, you know, a lot of times if I was going to go see a show and drive for one, it would be this uh, heavy metal show if I had to. But, you know, trying to drive to Lawrence, Kansas from Springfield was a kind of a big hall to have to go back in the middle of the night. But that would be very common. They would go to go there. And it's, it's a similar thing with Tulsa where you have Dallas. I mean, I think it's, it's the Kansas City and Dallas is the instead of it being in Missouri, it was it was Kansas City and St. and St. Louis. And then Springfield was always kind of like the third, the third runner. If you were lucky to get up the show, the same thing for Oklahoma, I think in some ways it was with Dallas and, and um, Oklahoma city, you know, so you have to uh, kind of hope, but I think it's, I think it's really been pretty over the last decade when I've been here, I've been really fortunate. I've seen a ton of shows at the BOK and, you know, I, I really, there have been some bands that I, I, I wish would have come to Tulsa that I didn't have the impetus just or the ability really to kind of pull it off. I have kids and couldn't really like, I'm going to leave for overnight for whatever and be gone to go see a concert, but uh, to Dallas. But, you know, I think we, I feel like for the bigger level bands, the arena level bands, we get a pretty good selection, but you're right sort of the middle level ones. It's like, if they don't play Canes, mm. you know, Brady, excuse me, the Tulsa theater gets, gets some, but it's, I think it's, it's your, there's sort of that, if I understood you correctly, the kind of that middle rung of acts, you don't really get a ton of, of those. Yeah. And Keynes has its own like, you know, history and kind of draw, right? right. It's own aura about it. And there's a, I'm sure like a sense in the music community that, yeah, okay, I've got to go play Keynes because so many else people have played there. Right. But that's right. not in every genre. Right. Right. There was, I saw a band called, um, maybe familiar some of your listeners, is a, a band called Lamb of God, a heavy metal band. I saw them at Keynes a few years ago and they, they had talked about how they basically, I think if I remember on stage, the, the singer said that we, we basically, always want to play Tulsa and we always want to play Canes. Now the last time I saw them, they played at the Brady now the Tulsa theater, but the, at the, they were basically talking about how 
they loved Canes, and they basically to, to the promoters, the, basically their you know their booking agents stuff like we want to play Canes, and then eventually they graduated from it. But they you know basically they were like, oh, you can play Lawrence, you can play here, you can play here, and they're like, no, we want to play, which was cool. I thought you know because a band like that I wouldn't necessarily think that would be their thing, but they loved the the vibe and the kind of the history of it. They really wanted to do it. Yeah. So back to you, you know, Uncle introduces you to that scene and, <laughs> yeah. and music and stuff. You know, you're growing up, you go into music, or you, you're listening to a lot of records. What was that first show for you? Yeah, I mean the first, the first, the first big arena rock show I ever saw was actually thanks to my sister, who's younger than me, who was a Go Go's fan, and we went to see with my mother again. I would have been about thirteen or twelve, probably twelve. Twelve. We went to see uh, the Go Go's at Madison Square Garden with Flock of Seagulls, which was something that you know I kind of went along with and. Uh, as, but it was her, like her, you know, she wanted really was a huge fan. I was like, whatever, uh, you know, at 12, I don't even remember if I had an option. I probably, I was like, you're going, <laughs> we're not going to pay for a babysitter. You're going. And, uh, I remember, you know, just standing there and the place was pretty full. It was full. It was the garden. It was, you know, 20,000 people there. And all these girls, it was like 80% girls doing the kind of the go-go's dance. If you remember the Belinda Carlisle would do this sort of like this, like the eighties dance, stereotypical eighties dance. And I could feel the upper level rocking. Like you could feel it shaking. And I was like, wow, I was like pretty, pretty struck by that. Just the, you know, and I'd been to some things in arenas before you've been to like the Harlem Globe Globetrotters and you see the circus or two as a kid or whatever, and probably whatever else I'd seen, maybe a Rangers game or two, but to have that experience, that was pretty remarkable. And then the first real big hard rock, heavy metal concert I ever saw, I saw um, Van Halen on the 1984 tour, which was a pretty good, a pretty good start jumping off point for that. Um, that was amazing. And uh, that was really what cemented my fandom. I heard jump on the radio and really liked it and bought the album and was a fan, but I'd never been to a show like that before. And then got a ticket, was able to scalp a ticket from a kid at school and was able to go. And it was just life-changing for me. And I became, you know, the Van Halen fan I am today. So, yeah. So that kind of, after the seeing that concert and having kind of like the history side of you as well, where it was just natural progression that you wanted to learn more about the band or just get as many, because back then, I mean, there's no social media, right? So you right. read, you've got to see what, get magazines and. Right. Right. I was a really avid, yeah, I was a really avid magazine reader. And I, you know, I buy this sort of the quickie bios or whatever, occasionally of like paperback books you could buy in the bookstore of like, you know, uh, Van Halen, you know, world's best band. It was, you know, obviously had been written in like, you know, like you know, a 96 hour straight typing job by this person who wrote it. And it was nothing, you know, it was just kind of like press releases kind of stitched together, but I would read that stuff. But, you know, as I got off into doing academic history, you know, kind of mentally, I would, I would, uh, have these moments of sort of saturation where you're working on your own research projects, which are not, not about Van Halen, right. Or whatever, or hard rock music I was doing, you know, I would say more traditional history topics and, uh, uh, you know, occasionally I would do like some surfing on the internet and try to figure out some tour dates or whatever, you know, shows I'd seen and stuff and sort of began to, to investigate things. And eventually in 2008 or so 2009, when I got, a I got a um, I got tenure and had a sabbatical period where I was, I was, um, you know, after tenure, they give you, give you kind of a, a release to do some research on writing. And I had a couple of weeks, you know, basically like a month. I was like, okay, I don't want to do anything. I just wanted to take a break. You've just been really pushing to get tenure and you get tenure. is a huge deal. And then, uh, I started to, to look into doing a, like a small article for like Van Halen news desk. Maybe some of your listeners know that it's basically the main Van Halen, 
um, website that the band doesn't really doesn't update its own website, but the band on the news desk, you know, but things will happen and they'll, they'll have regular stories up every week. And so I started, you know, looking into doing an article for there and that's what eventually snowballed into doing the Van Halen book. I just got really interested in their early years, wanted to know more about it because I felt as if I could kind of get a lot of information about their post fame years, as you might imagine, after 1978, when the band becomes famous, people write more articles and a lot more information that's sort of established, but there was a lot of um, snippets you'd read about backyard parties and uh, failed auditions and the, the brothers not letting David Lee Roth join their band and these types of things. And I got really interested in that because no one had really documented that. Typically when you read a book about Van Halen or a magazine article, it'd be a very short three, four, five pages about that period. And then the rest of the book would be, or the rest of the article would be, you know, 90% of the article would be about the, the other stuff. And I wanted to kind of flip that script and say, I'm really interested in those years from 1970 or so when um, Ed and Alex Van Halen started playing out uh, and then they eventually have Dave join Roth join in 73, which I didn't even know what year he joined. I don't think anyone knew for sure, because people were telling you it was 74, 73. And, and basically, eventually they, they obviously get their breakthrough in 78. So it was, you know, like a seven, eight year period where they were, um, kind of struggling in one way or the other to make it. And that was the period I got really interested in. Cause I thought that's a lot of time. That's a lot of years that really no one has documented. Yeah. I mean, listen, listening to the audio books, fascinating. I just, such a good, you know, such a cool story of like, you know, there's so many things you can pull from, right? You know, relating it to business or whatever, like never giving up and literally playing because you love it because it's just the thing know, to do. Yeah. And like not making much money and, and driving all over California and just basically earning enough to pay for gas. And right. And it's, yeah, it, it's mad. And if you look at a different world, you're like, well, what if they did give up and get real jobs? Like, you know, the world would be without Van Hill and they'd just be a myth of some backyard party band that people would just talk about if you knew or lived in the area or whatever but yeah it's i mean i was fascinated i, I thought it was i mean you don't have to be a rock and roll fan to, to listen to it or read the book to enjoy it which is what i love i appreciate you saying that yeah it was you know for me as i learned more about the band and did so the way i did the book was basically as a foundation i did lots of interviews with locals, people who were promoters or club owners. And then lots of people just went to high school with them or grew up in the, the neighborhood and saw their backyard parties or, you know, helped haul their gear, like basically their early roadies and these types of, of guys. And that too was really the foundation of the book because uh, you know, they were the ones who had really had the front row seat for it all. You know, and that was the days of course, when you could like drive to Eddie Van Halen's house and knock on the door and say, whatever, if you're, Hey, I want to hire you to play. Yeah. my birthday party. I mean, that happened all the time. I mean, you know, they, you know, they're, you know, and then you just see sign a little contract and they, they or him and his brother and you'd sign a contract and they play your birthday party in two weeks or something on a Thursday night. So, um, those are the people I was interested in talking to. And yeah, I mean the, the, uh, the inspiration for me really came from, and I realized, you know, how, um, how hard they had worked as you talk about that they really had, you know, there, there, there are certainly different ways to get discovered. And I, I don't want to ever knock anybody who's got real talent, who's like on Instagram and is able to get famous that way or anything, um, you know, through their own, their own musical talent. But it's a different type of, of that when you're, you know, as the athletes like to say grinding, you know, when you have to go grind, you know, you, you know, in other words, I think we all accept for a fact that nobody becomes a superstar uh, soccer player in Europe or a superstar NBA player by just sitting on their couch and like making videos, right. They're out there. Like they're like practicing and playing and dedicating themselves and like in the gym 
late night when no one else is there on a freezing cold morning, they're shooting hoops or they're doing, and it was kind of a similar thing for the Van Halen's. I mean, I think that was the thing that was really cool. There was this, obviously there's talent there, tremendous musical talent, but they also work so hard. And that's, you know, that was kind of the, the basic, I think the moral of the story of the book, one moral of the story was that one of the reasons why they were able to do so well in 1978 when they broke out, it's because they played so much. It wasn't so much. They were just good musicians, what they, which is a given, right? The brothers were good musicians, but they, they had played so much that they were able to go on these tours and play with bands like Sabbath and Boston and Sammy Hagar and journey and hold their own. Or sometimes you know, a lot of nights be better than those bands. And that's really the, I think, you know, basically putting in the hours of work and dedicating yourself to your craft, which again, just isn't sitting on the bed playing guitar, which is what Eddie Van Halen did. It's not just sitting in your, you know, sitting in the, behind the drum set and practicing. It's actually going to some biker bar with the hell's angels there glaring at you. I mean, Alex Van Halen talked about, I love this anecdote. I think I put it in the book. We talked about how like you're sitting there, it's the third set of the night and you got this drunk hell's angel standing by you with a chain around his hand going, I want to hear that. You know, I want to hear that grand funk song again, man. You better tell your, you know, your effing singer to, to start singing it fast. I mean, that's the dedication, right? We were like, you know, <laughs> you're like, okay, you know, that's the stuff that it really, you know, cause they're not, you're not making any real money doing that anyway. You're just doing it cause you love the music and you believe that, you know, this is what we want to do. Um, it's not like you're thinking like, Oh, once we get to fling this biker bar, we'll be in the forum tomorrow. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, there's no, there was no obvious path to that. It just, except playing and hoping that you're going to, you're going to basically get people excited enough that they're going to kind of flock to the band. And that's what eventually did happen. Of course they, you know, they end up establishing a following in Pasadena and they're able to get to eventually get to the sunset strip and get discovered. But that's, that's the cool story. And again, it's just, you know, it's like the same thing where, you know, you're like, you're an NFL player and you've, you know, you've got a, you've got a knee that needs surgery and you're still going out there and playing our soccer player, same thing. And you're just like, I got five games left. I'm going to keep playing. And I want to, I want to make it to the Super Bowl, And that's, that's my goal. And you just keep, you keep trying and you just hope that you're going to make it to the Super Bowl. Yeah. There's the bit in the book where he said that, like, I think somebody like there was a fight or whatever in, in, in the crowd and he sees some guy like with his guts hanging out. And then the next set, they like push the, the push the speakers out a little bit so they could dive behind them. If they were yeah. firing uh, shots or Eddie Van Halen told that story many, many, many times. Um, yeah. Um, and that's one of those biker bars I'm talking about. I mean, these places were like, were dives and that's the thing people don't understand. These were not like, nice nightclubs where you'd bring a date and sit down and order like a shrimp cocktail and wait for your martini to serve. These were biker bars, you know, with guys in chains with, you know, long stringy hair with their, their biker girls with them. And just, and that was it. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's one of the, the best stories is that they thought the other gang was going to come back the next night and kill someone else in revenge. And they said, okay, here's our plan. And they're already playing on this tiny stage. So you can imagine like the speakers must've been like Eddie Van Halen was standing with his back to the marshals because they wanted to be able to jump behind the, the marshal to hide. I mean, that's, but that's, you know, cause a lot of people be like, especially, to be honest, I mean, someone like David Lee Roth, whose father had money, you know, he uh, it's kind of a crazy thing to think about that. He was so dedicated to the band thing because he was living in 1976, 76, 76, let's just say before they were signed. He was living in a 20, 20 room mansion. Yeah. I mean, this is a place that was so nice that in later years they were used it for movie sets to be like the rich person's house. And I'm not saying that to criticize Dave. I'm actually saying that to compliment him because like, he could have been like, you know what, guys, this, we're not getting anywhere. This, this is, you know, making, you know, whatever. It's just, but they, they loved the music and they were committed to the craft, to the art of it, you know? And, and he just like, from, from listening and reading, you know, listening to the book, it, he was the one that was really pushing 
a lot, right? You'd think it'd be the opposite way around because you're right. He could have just cashed in and been like, dad's got money. I'm doing fine. I can get an office job, whatever. But he was always kind of pushing the boat out, you know, with the facts yes. and, the right. and right. play these places. And which, I mean, it's, and obviously his story by trying out and trying out and them saying, look, you can't sing. Like, you just, you can't sing or whatever. Right. He gets in. It's, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's super, you know, it's super inspirational. I actually am just, I'm doing a, a, um, a little bit of a writing project on Elvis right now. I'm not writing a book. I'm just writing a little thing on Elvis. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar to Elvis insofar as when you read, even even read Elvis's Wikipedia page and see it where basically they were, you know, early on, it was like his music teacher said, you can't really sing. And he tried out for some like quartet, like, you know, harmony, like a barbershop quartet type of group in Memphis. And they were like, yeah, no, you're, you're, not, gonna, you're not good enough. You know, and, and it's just, it doesn't mean, it doesn't even mean that they were wrong not to hire him because maybe he was terrible when he auditioned, but he didn't give up. Right. He was just like, I, I like this. I, I can do this. And he kept trying, you know, and eventually of course he becomes the biggest uh, rock star or pop star in, in history of the world. It's, but that's the thing that's really interesting. It's like people could just make, you know, it's, there's sort of that line between delusion and confidence. Right. That's what I always think is, is the great about the David Lee Roth example yeah. is that, I mean, even more than Elvis. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I presume Elvis, you know, Elvis had sung and people had told them, complimented him along the way. You know, but I, I suspect there were less that went towards Dave and like Dave was probably getting less positive reinforcement for his singing early on. And to basically be told that, um, yeah. it's really, it's really, yeah, it's, it's so inspirational. I've never met David Lee Roth. I've never talked to him. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, super inspirational. I think that's the thing for people to like, you read Van Halen rising. I always try to tell people it's not really about, you know, it's about a band. It's obviously if you like rock music or you like Van Halen, it's a great book to read, but it's really just more about facing off against the odds. And if you believe in something and you really, really are an artist, this is your passion, whatever it is. And some people are, some people are an accountant. It's their passion. They want to be an accountant. So you should work as hard as you can to be a great accountant. But if you're uh, an artist and have that passion, that's for me was the, you know, that was their art for lack of a better term. That was their, their uh, thing that got them excited and wanted to do it. And they loved, they loved to do it. And that's what was, was so, um, was so cool about it to sort of see, see how they could continue on in the face, especially I think as well, people understand, you know, like any other art form, there can be types of art. Like when, uh, for example, when, uh, you know, Picasso's works were first, first displayed, people are like, this is trash. You know, most people are like, this is absolute trash. This is an outrage. People were outraged. This is like, how could he, how could this be art? You know, we're looking for a portrait that is a beautiful representation of a woman. Like you'd see in a, you know, a, a 19th century house that looks just like the, the Lord of the Manor or something like that, where this is like blocks, it's, you know, unusual shapes and weird colors. And, you know, to kind of have that, to go up against basically the norms, people are going, you know, this heavy metal music is over, man. Like this music you're playing is like, no one wants to hear that anymore. But, you know, that's just, that was 73 with Sabbath and you guys are just like a warmed over Sabbath or, yeah. you know, and to them to keep going, no, we're different. We're different and we're, and keep going. It's really was, really was inspirational. Yeah. Cause Roth was totally off the wall. Right. I mean, he was, he was one of his, obviously one of a kind and one of his own and tried many things. Started obviously, Red Bull Jet and everything else, and then comes back and it was it. They need to borrow his amp, so that's how he got back reconnected. And yeah, he, you know, he was he was a guy who I always say, if it was eight, if it was you know, if it was you know, nineteen ten, he would have been like a vaudeville performer. I mean, obviously, he like 
it was just, I always think with David Lee Roth, he's, you know, he grew up in the age when rock music was the biggest, basically the biggest thing going, you know, you, he grew up as a younger person, like the rat, the brat pack, the rat pack with Sinatra and those guys and probably like admire, he admired all those guys. But when he was a teenager, obviously it was like Alice Cooper and David Bowie and Mick Jagger and these guys, you know, but if he'd grown up in 1920 and it was like vaudeville was big, he would have been like, I want to be the guy spinning the hat on the cane and like doing the move. He, you know, that's just kind of what he does on stage. If you watch his moves. I mean, I think he really, it was just, it was what drew him in part because it was a path where he could get what he wanted to do, what he wanted to do yeah. um, in front of a big audience. You know, that was the thing, obviously rock attracted big audiences. And you could potentially do that, but yeah, he's a, you know, he really is a, a, a person who uh, one of these people who I, you know, you just think, right now with COVID going on, it's got to be difficult because he really, I think he probably is someone who feeds off of adulation from crowds. Like that's a big part of what drove, drove that. I don't mean that to really criticize him. It's just sort of his, you know, athletes are the same way. Like they, that's why they don't want to retire. They want to like, they want to compete and they want to play and they want to, you know, and so I can imagine it's been difficult for him because I think that's really was the, you know, whatever, basically whatever it took to get to that spot where he could be the center of attention and the guy in the spotlight doing his, doing his thing is, you know, that was, that was the thing. And hard rock music with the Van Halen's just seemed to think to be the thing that fit for him at the time and yeah. that time and place. And, you know, he was in Pasadena, they were there, he saw it and he liked the same type of music sort of, and there we go. Yeah. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? To, to the whole story, but what was one of the things when you started getting, diving into the research, doing interviews with people from who went to the parties and stuff like that, what was one of the most interesting things that stood out to you that you had, I mean, you didn't know and coming into it as a historian, but also as a super fan, what are the things that like really stood out to you that, that just was super interesting when you're doing your research? Well, I mean, I think first of all, I didn't really know the geography of Los Angeles very well. I'd been to Los Angeles as a kid to Disneyland, but when you really start to look at how huge it is, how spread out it is, it's, it's kind of uh, astonishing, you know, that it's basically, it's like, you know, it's, I forget. It's like, I can't remember how many, how many miles is I should remember from like end to end, but you're like, wow. Like they, they, you know, when, when I really started to see how far, they could travel to play. I thought this really was good for them that they were there uh, because there were, you could drive to these towns like Pomona and San Bernardino, uh, Seal Beach. Uh, you could go to Orange County. You could play Norwalk. There were all these places that had places to play. And so you could actually develop a circuit where you were just kind of trapped, but the, the mileage, that was the first thing that was really just amazing. Like you're driving like, wow, 60 miles. You're still in Los Angeles yeah. to be able to play a gig. And then 60 miles home was really pretty amazing. And then the other thing was about when I really started to hear from people about backyard parties and they're talking about them. And I'll never forget this. If someone told me pretty early on in the research, I mean, pretty early. I mean, four or five years before the book came out, maybe four years before the book came out. So I was like, you know, one of those, you know, so the parties were written up in the, in the newspaper. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I, I remember scrolling through a couple of newspapers trying to find the party. And I found this Pasadena party melee broken up by police. Like that. And of course it didn't mention Van Halen because it was 74 and it, the band didn't matter. Right? They didn't, I don't think you even mentioned there was a band there, but it basically like a large teenage party was broken up by the police. And I'm reading this. It was you know, like, you know, 15 sentences and talk, they arrested people and stuff. And I was like, wow, man, it really, happened. you know, it really, it was, you know, it isn't just like mythology. I mean, people would tell me the stories and I believed them, but sort of when you read that, like that sort of like documentation from 
the day after written in the Pasadena newspaper. And there are a few of these articles like that. Again, they never mentioned Van Halen, but they basically say police broke up a, a rowdy party and sent, you know, uh, sent people to jail. You really say, but these guys really did make a, a stir. This was because you started to understand that when you're a teenager, everyone wants to know what happened over the weekend. You know, why would you go over the weekend? Oh, that's just party, you know, drunk or drunk or whatever you did. You know, it's the same old, same. We saw this movie people talk about. Yeah. But when you start to realize that, like, those guys were able to have these parties that were just people excited, wanted to hang out and party and then hear this great band. You know, that was that built their following. So that people it's I would talk to people, you know, this is 40 years later. And they're talking about this like it was they won their high school football championship. Like they scored the touchdown. Like they're like, it was the best party ever, man. You couldn't, man, you couldn't believe it. And they're like, you couldn't believe it. You go in there, man. You, you, I parked seven blocks away. You know, I walked for seven blocks. We get there. I could barely get in the backyard. You know, <laughs> we had to climb up on the, climbed up on the garage and, and jumped in the back. I mean, this starts, you know, people tell me these stories and they're like so excited. And you're like, man, and these guys really did yeah. the music and just the, 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 the time it was kind of that dazed and confused meets Woodstock time period where, you know, there was a lot of these festivals going on. I think that was an inspiration, but it was also this sort of age where if you got pulled over driving drunk, of course, neither of us are going to condone that, but if people were pulled over got driving drunk at the time, they just would say drive, well, drive safely or like, you're, you know, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> open your eyes, man. Or like, yeah, yeah like be careful. or I'm going to follow you home or park the car and I'll drive you home. Like there was, you know, it's just a different, there's a different era for that type of stuff, stuff that, you know, certainly now is like unthinkable in some sort of ways that that would ever go on. And so to have that be part of the social fabric and to realize that stuff actually happened the way it was sort of, you know, cause you'd hear, you'd hear the guys in the band talk about it, but of course it's David Lee Roth. Of course he's going to like, kind of like, you know, spin a myth, but you realize it's like, it was, it was pretty much dead true. I mean, pretty much dead true. Um, and that to have that be the, um, the thing to discover and realize that no one had really documented that or written about it. And I thought, this is so, this is like amazing that this went on. Uh, that was fun. That was fun. And then, and then also to, I think to talk to people who had grown up with Roth of the brothers and just, you know, even though maybe they never not have talked to them for like 40, 30 years. I mean, a lot of times it was like, oh, I saw Eddie in 1979 at a gas station or something. And we, so we said, Hey, I haven't seen, you know, cause you get rich and you get famous and you move away. It's not like you like blow off all your old friends, but it's just like, you can't be a normal person person anymore you can't be like hey i'm eddie van halen i'm gonna go like eat in a diner and then like you know go shopping at the mall or something you just can't do that and uh you know people just saying like oh i'm so glad they made it it was all you know there was such a great time they were really appreciative of like the of the band and just how much fun it was basically instead of being like uh, they, you know they, they got rich and forgot about pasadena it was mostly like you know like man i'm so happy for those guys they were great guys and they worked really hard and it was so they made it so fun we had so much fun you know just going to their parties and love the music and that was that was kind of cool too to hear people just really be genuinely gratified by their success that's our band they felt like oh that, you know it was our band and it was just kind of so cool that we got to see them before everyone else did and then like by you know eight years later they're the biggest man in the world yeah like they put in their time they totally deserve it you know it's it, everyone was wondering why this hadn't, why they hadn't been signed sooner. Right. Right. Which is so, you know, great to see, especially when you talk about the, when you interview people about the high school stories and, you know, if you hear one guy say, Oh, it was the best party ever. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Whatever. Like, sure. You know, you had too many drinks. You were 16. You probably don't remember anything. It's four years ago. But when everybody's telling you that. Yes. You know? That's exactly right. That's what I always tell people. It's sort of like, you know, you get to a point of saturation yeah. where 
it's either everyone's having kind of a mass delusion or everyone's kind of like talked themselves into this over the years or it actually happened. You've talked to like 35 people and you start to hear the same things over and over again, you know, and there were certain details that really, you know, some people were very, very clear about and there were sort of other people who'd say, yeah, that happened. And well, I don't exactly remember that, but it's basically, you know, you kind of get to like an 80%, 90% picture of like, you're, you're, okay, these, these, some things I'm not totally sure they happened. It doesn't really matter, but you just get the basic idea. I mean, just, it was just, yeah, it was really a, an amazing amazing thing. I mean, one of the, my favorite things I, I always mention this cause I'm, um, it's my one, my one big brag I can do it myself is that, uh, I've, I heard from a, a mutual friend that, uh, Taylor, um, from the Foo Fighters, the drummer for the Foo Fighters read my book and I guess he, he, you know, he lives in LA and at some point he took the book and drove around Pasadena, like to the addresses. He was like, <laughs> and like, was like, Oh shit. This cool. They had a party here. You know, like I, I could, I've never, I've never talked to Taylor or met him or anything. I, I'd love to ask, you know, talk to him about it, but like, apparently he did like this, like, you know, guided tour of Pasadena with my book and like, Oh, this is where the other one was awesome. You know, like, you know, big blonde hair hanging down, like, yeah. yes, you know, one of the Foo Fighters. So that, you know, to me, that's, that's cool. I mean, it's just like, that's the ultimate compliment that it's just, because if you're a fan, you know, that's that same sort of excitement is there to kind of think about like, wow, you know, like, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of like, you know, Elvis slept here. Like that's that old cliche, like, oh, Elvis slept here or whatever. Um, there was a place in my hometown in New Jersey that Babe Ruth, they, it was an inn that was torn down by Babe Ruth and Marilyn Monroe, supposedly. I, 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 I who knows, but supposedly they slept there. It was like, you know, it's like, oh, Babe Ruth slept here. You know, that was kind of, you know, you know, this is where the party happened. This is this is where the Van Halen party happened. It's, you know, 40 years later and right. the people there are like whack, waxing their Porsches and like, why is this weird long haired guy staring at us or whatever? But like, you know, it's just, that was the deal. They, they, that was the, the fun of it. They played in these rich neighborhoods and made a big stir. What, what's, I mean, thinking about it in today's terms, like it would be nuts from there. If like this weekend, you know, news nine or news six or whatever is live and some helicopter shutting down a party because in some, fancy neighborhood in Tulsa or, or you know, wherever. It, it just would never, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, it's even weird. It's even weird, of course, to think about in terms of COVID, right? say one thing, but like, obviously it'd be like, you know, but it would just never, it just isn't, you know, the, the way that um, I'm not trying to be like a 50 year old guy saying how the kids are today. It's just a different social yeah. scene. You know, it's just, you know, that was, I think the aspiration for a lot of kids at that time who loved music was to form a band. You know, and that's not the aspiration of a lot of kids today. They have different things they aspire to in terms of, even if they love music, that's not what they think about doing. They're now making TikTok videos to music. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, and that's cool too, whatever, you know, that's, that's cool. Um, but you know, there were so many, there were actually were a lot of rock bands in Pasadena. Um, again, these are teenage bands, you know, Van Halen ended up being the biggest and the most successful, but there were trend, there were lots of really good musicians. Some of the guys who came out of LA, people would recognize, um, Paul McCartney's guitarist, this guy named Rusty Anderson was in a band that was playing around LA at the time, you know, and he's now he's, He's like, a, you know, basically playing with the, one of the Beatles, which is pretty damn cool. But, um, you know, that was the thing Like people wanted to form bands. And that was how you thought about expressing yourself as a man. It wasn't like we're going to play in the garage. It's like, let's play in front of people. That's how we meet girls. And that's how we can, like, have a good time and, you know, learn our, you know, learn our craft. And so that was the thing it was. And I always uh, go back to the Woodstock or the Monterey Pop and example, like the age of festivals. That was, you know, it's kind of like, well. Oh, hey, your parents are going out of town. Let's get go at a tiny stage. And what they did, and they basically bought like one of those little like, you know, two foot, one you know, six inch stage or something like that. And they put the amps on the stage and they, you know, put the plug in the power and they actually got some of these shows. They had a, the spotlight, which is even like hilarious is that they had a, and they basically like went to the Renaissance Center and bought a, like a little, 
you know, like a little like searchlight thing. And they would like have a spotlight and they put on these mini concerts and they, some, you know, some of them lasted for hours, four, three, two, three hours. And some of them lasted probably like half an hour, you know, and it was a, it was a thing. It's like, they got paid either way. Um, so many, and so many great funny stories. I and mean, one of the, the stories that was in David the Ross book, I probably put it in Van Halen rising. His biography was that <laughs> the police would come and they'd bust up the party and the Van Halen guys had their equipment. So they'd want to stay. Like they wouldn't leave. Everyone's running and scattering. And the police would come up and be like, what the hell's going on here? And he'd be like, they'd be like, Hey man, we were supposed to play a birthday party. They said there was going to be 17 people here. You know, like, I don't know what this is all about. Like kind of put this whole story. And he's like, all right, all right, you kids, you know, pack up your stuff and go home. And I was like, this thing is like, they're like, we were scared, you know, like, and any other things like Roth would say that they'd walk around the yard and all the kids would drop their drugs. They'd drop their whiskey. They drop their pills. They drop their, 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 their bag of pot. And (laughs) you know, cops are like chasing everyone away. Those guys are walking around going, Oh, Hey, someone dropped their Jack Daniels or Hey, look at that. We'll take this. So, um, you know, it was a, it was such a cool, fun thing to write about. I mean, you can't ask for a better, a better topic because, you know, there are just some, I think there's just some stories that are, that are just uh, inspirational beyond, as you said, beyond music. And I think any, any, you know, it, whether it be, uh, you know, like a movie like Rocky or, uh, you know, anything like that, where you're sort of like, it's an underdog type of story. And that was just sort of what it, it was. And it just was something I hadn't really imagined that it was going to be when I started working on the book, but you sort of like just started the, the narrative starts to come together for you. You know, this is the classic underdog story because these guys were, were not, there was nobody from the record companies coming to see them early on. They just were like, eh, whatever. Just, you know, they just thought they were the wrong sound at the wrong time, or just, they just weren't interested just, which is not super uncommon um, for, for that. But it always is, even if it's not super uncommon, it always is amazing after the fact it's like the, you know, it's like I'm a, a long suffering New York Jets fan. And, you know, it's like the Tom Brady story. You got to give the guy all the props in the world because like he's a six round draft pick and they're like everyone passing him over. And then they he gets, you know, he becomes the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, I don't think there's really any debate anymore, whether you think he's I see whatever. this year, right? Yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, that's, you know, my, I, I say that as a person who's been miserable because of Tom Brady for a decade plus. But, um, yeah. you know, it's the same type of thing. It's like all, all the other teams would be like, we just, we, you know, we didn't see anything there. Well, somebody, you know, somebody did, or somebody just got lucky. You know, it's just one of those things like, oh, the Patriots are like, oh, we'll take this guy, yeah. you know, so in the sixth round. But, you know, either way, it's like, that's the, that's kind of the thing. And we like, people like those types of stories to think about, oh, these, you know, they were, he was, uh, he was underappreciated and mis, misestimated by all these people. And that was the, kind of the Van Halen story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I said, when, is it Gene Simmons that tries to help him out and he's doing his own thing, doesn't have time or whatever. And, and they, they record and it doesn't go anywhere. Right, 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 uh, right. And they, right. They, they have the, the record there already. And, and then they go on pull with Ozzy and like, he's crushing Ozzy and Ozzy doesn't want to go out <laughs> because they destroy in the, you know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Shot. I tell people, um, if you go on YouTube and you Google search for uh, Van Halen Fresno 1978, there's actually, believe it or not, some 16 millimeter film footage of some, incredibly, I don't know, crazy person was able to get a film camera inside this arena and they're opening for Sabbath. And there's, you know, there's about 15 minutes of film with sound, with sound. And you can just see, I mean, you kind of can see that that's, and I'm so glad that film survives because anyone who's watching that could kind of see the energy and the excitement, how good the songs were and how great Eddie Van Halen played and how David Ross jumping off the, you know, the drum riser and they're doing all these things. And you're sort of like, 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, like, you know, no, ba- no normal band is going to be able to, to deal with that. And I mean, normal meaning that like, you know, like obviously like, like a Led Zeppelin at the absolute top of their game, we could go through the bands and be like, yeah, they could have, they could have handled that. But like Sabbath was, was sort of on the way down because of drugs and just exhaustion. They were just sort of, and they were, they were breaking up basically. So they were just kind of mailing it in every night. <laughs> you got these guys come out. I mean, the other thing, it's a hilarious story, which is supposedly true. It was one of those things I put in Van Halen rising. It was a quote, you know, from Ozzy or one of the other guys. And I was always like wondering if it was actually hundred percent true or not. Meaning that I just, you'd love to ask them more about it, but it was just like, it's too good to leave out was the one where supposedly they were told by their manager that it, like, who's going to open for us. This is Sabbath, <laughs> like some bar band from Los Angeles. <laughs> like apparently that's what Warner brothers told them or something, which is actually in theory true. Right. But of course, like they're imagining these, like these, like these four dopes are going to come out there and just stand there and like, you know, kind of like go through the motions and they have like this supercharged, cocaine fuel jack daniels super athletic incredible virtuoso with these amazing songs come out and just like you know no, you know that's why that's why it was just that's the other thing it's just so yeah so amazing it's just uh to have those guys be able to to play with a band like sabbath who they idolized obviously i mean that's the thing it's important to understand that sabbath eddie and alex idolized i mean idolized black sabbath that was their like they cut their teeth on those songs and so you know, it's a cool story for that too. And they just have that, that ability to, to play in front of these big audiences and be so exposed to all these things. And just, you know, what happens sometimes I've saw, you know, I, um, I saw Bon Jovi open for rat a million years ago in New Jersey and Bon Jovi was just better. I mean, it was just like, it was one of these things that John Jovi, John Bon Jovi was just, he, it was just, he was obviously so much more magnetic and just had a certain charisma. The band was, you're just like, wow. You know, you didn't see that too often as a kid, but occasionally you'd see opening acts that would top headliners. And that was that night. I was like, wow. And of course, years later, I was kind of like, oh, I get it. You know, like you kind of like, like, oh, whatever. I'm going I'm here to see this band. And this other band comes in. They're like, they're really good. They were actually better. I don't want to admit it because I like the other band better probably, but they were better. Yeah, definitely. There was, that's happened a couple of times. I've been to shows and that's happened or wanted to go to shows. And that's happened a couple of times. Um, I can't remember that. I went to see Chris Stapleton when he came to Oklahoma City. Oh, oh yeah. It opened for him. Oh, they were all so good. And I can't can't remember who it is. Gonna, uh, I'll remember it in an hour, obviously. Um, but anyway, I mean, we could talk about the book forever. It's so good. People listening should definitely go, and I'll link it below in the description so you can go buy it or, or listen to it. Um, Very cool. Uh, yeah, of course, Van Halen played Canes too. Everyone should know they played. They played uh, the Civic Center in Tulsa. They played Canes, and uh, I think they played last played in Tulsa before they came back around with David Lee Roth in the last couple of decades was in '81. Uh, but the first place they ever played was Canes. They were an opener and they played uh, played there in I think March or April of '78. This would have been like just you know weeks after they left Los Angeles for the tour. So they, you know that was the first place they ever played in, in Oklahoma. I'm pretty sure it was Canes. So uh, Gage, who sent you the tweet that actually put us together, um, Gage is actually one of six. He has five brothers. So one of his I'm good friends with his older brother again. So I got two questions from them um, to oh, yeah. for putting us together. And Gage asks. If you had to argue as to why Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen is the greatest guitar player of all time, how would you make your case? Well, I'd make the case by saying everyone who looks at Eddie Van Halen thinks about the solos first, you know, sort of the two-handed tapping, and that's sort of what he is known as as a soloist. But when you look at the full array of talents that the guy had, I think you can make a case that he was the greatest guitarist of all time. And I think that's, you know, it's debatable. He, uh, but 
he was a person who, first of all, was a, a person who innovated in the um, art of building guitars just by trial and error. Kind of, he was basically single-handedly the guy who changed the way that people designed electric guitars. Mm-hmm. It was very common in the 70s before Eddie came on the scene. There was the most common thing was that you would just buy a guitar off the rack. It'd be like a Fender Strat or a Gibson Les Paul. And what you would do is you would have two guitars. If you wanted to play a, you know, kind of a cleaner sound, you'd play with the Fender. If you want kind of a more crunchy sound, you might play with the Les Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, Eddie sort of had this bright idea. I mean, bright meaning brilliant idea to sort of go, what if I took the pickup out of the, the Les Paul and shoved it in the Fender and sort of invented this, this basically, you know, what he called his Frankenstein, but basically I would call, you know, the sort of the super strap, basically the souped up Stratocaster with the whammy bar and um, the locking system. So you could do those huge dive bombs you know, amp amplification. He was really the person who came up with this whole uh, guitar sound of the 1980s, that Brown sound, which is, you know, kind of a creamy overdriven mm-hmm. high gain sound that was copied by every, every, every hard rock um, guitar player was, you know, in some ways was, was borrowing something from Eddie. And of course I said, the solos, his two handed technique, if you listen to, you know, a song like maniac by Michael Cimbello. So I'm talking about the, the flash dance soundtrack, if you listen to the guitar solo, there's a two-handed tapping in there. It's basically an Eddie Van Halen solo in there. There, there are numerous examples of this, of guitar solos that are Eddie Van Halen-like guitar solos, in part because of his work on Beat It. I mean, that was really the thing. It was sort of the crossover where you have the, you have the heavy metal solo in the R&B pop song by Michael Jackson. Uh, the songs. Yeah, the thing is that Eddie Van Halen didn't just write 10 great songs. They didn't write 20 great songs. I mean, he basically wrote like 80 great songs. I mean, you can kind of argue that obviously ones are better than others, but you know, you can like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, there's like a whole array, Tony Iommi, same thing, whole array of songs. You'd be like, these are greatness. And it wasn't just sort of a flash in the pan thing, one or two albums. It was, I mean, arguably they had some, um, I can tell you, I should know off the top of my head, six, uh, eight, what, what, 10 platinum records in a row, 11, you know, from 1978. I'm, I, I can't do the count in my head, but it's something like 12 platinum records in a row from 78 to 1995. They had only platinum records. And, uh, you know, that's, it, that's not only because of Eddie Van Halen, he had a good band, you know, good band behind him. He had good singers and all that thing, but he, you know, he wrote the majority, the vast majority of the music, you know, he didn't write the lyrics, maybe he didn't write the melodies for the vocals, but he, he wrote the, the, the chunks of the song, things that became the songs, you know? And then um, I think the last thing I would, I would say about, about Eddie was just how many different techniques he came up with, especially in his early years. I mean, in the last few years, it's sort of, I think you, you get to the point where you just are sort of, you know, you're sort of, I don't want to say run out of steam, but it's like, what do you also have to prove? You don't have to sit in your bedroom, try to come up with something new. He already come up with, but if you listen to those first six Van Halen records, especially there's like a new guitar technique, whether it be your solo eruption in the first record, which is a world changer right there. Spanish fly, which is with the, the acoustic guitar, the guitar solo, um, cathedral with the, with the Stratocaster, with the volume knob. So all these different examples of different solos were sort of like these sounds are like so unworldly and different. He was continually raising the bar on these things and changing, you know, he wasn't just basically going, I'm just going to play the eruption solo over and over again. You know, so from that, it's not just that he was just a great soloist. He was a, such a creative, um, creative guy. So if, you know, hardware songs, soloing, um, and then to keep the band going. I mean, I think the last thing I would say is that for all Eddie Van Halen's flaws, uh, as a, you know, as a person who has struggled with relationships with, with singers, whatever they mean, just mean, in other words, that, you know, flaws that meaning like 
you know, maybe he wasn't the easiest guy to get along with at times, but you know, it's like a marriage. You're going to fight with people. And sometimes the fights lead to breakups. And he was able to, to base with his brother, to be able to keep that band going and succeeding for decades, which is in, in and of itself is not easy, you know, beyond the making great albums, just sort of to keep the thing going, you know, at some point you have enough money where you're just like, I could just sit home, <laughs> you know, I could just sit home. I could just sell a house and sit home. And uh, I'm sure he hit that point at some point where he could have said, I could just quit all this stuff and do whatever. I could just build guitars or whatever. And he didn't, he never did that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's my answer. Constantly a student of just improving yes. passion and just like that total fight to just willingness to just improve and, and find something new every day, which is amazing. And then Gan, uh, who's Gage's older brother, also asked, and that kind of leads on to what you mentioned just now is he said, what was more impressive uh, was it his him modifying his own guitars or the sa- uh, for the sound or his ability to perform? Yeah, I think the perform. I mean, I think the performances were probably more impressive. I think you know the amp tinkering stuff was definitely cool, and he definitely came up with it, his own unique sound. But you know, I think when I think about the songs is what he asked about the songs. Is that right? I mean, yeah, you know, just, you're starting, I mean, that to me is like, you know, you can buy an amp. I mean, that's the thing. And at some point it was what people probably miss too, or they don't think about is it when you're that great of guitar player, pretty much anything you play through is going to sound like you, like you may hate it. You may go, I hate this amp, but you're going to be like, Oh, that's Eddie Van Halen or that's Tony Iommi or that's Dave Matthews or whoever you kind of have, they have a sound and a way to play. That's John Mayer. I, I, I recognize that. Um, you know, but with the songs, I mean, you have to come up with the songs yourself. I mean, you can't just like grab an amp and sound like yourself. You have to come up with the songs and to be able to continually do that and then alter the band's sound. I think that's what may be interesting about the question is that the evolution switching towards more keyboards and more melodic, more ballad-esque stuff in the eighties, more pop. I mean, it was, you know, the, the great example here is my sister-in-law and my, my, um, my wife were a little younger than me. So they were graduating high school in the later eighties instead of the mid eighties. And, uh, you know, they had 5150 in their car and they used to listen to it on the way to swim practice every morning. And you know, that was, you know, they didn't have Van Halen two in the car. Didn't mean they probably wouldn't have liked it. Probably. I mean, they probably would like a couple songs, but like Van Halen, the 5150 was really a, a main, much more mainstream, even more than 1984. It was a very mainstream record, you know, and they, they, uh, they were able to slide into that Eddie and Alex and the rest of that band at Sammy were able to slide into that slot where you, they basically broaden their audience. Like, you know, maybe some of the real heavy metalers kind of like, I hate the pop stuff. I can't stand Sammy Hagar, blah, blah. They fell away, but they just kept, you know, it's basically like you, you, you shed, you shed, 10% of your audience and you gain, a, you know, another 50% in uh, membership. You know, it's like, so it's fine. We lost it. That's fine. They, they jumped off the bandwagon, but we've gained 50% more, more fans because of this. So, I mean, that to me is to be able to shift your sound halfway through and evolve and be able to keep that going. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, last question then, who are you listening to right now? Who's kind of up and coming that you're listening to? Maybe what's the Tulsa music scene like, um, just kind of, or who are you interested in hearing more and, I mean, whenever we can watch live music again, I guess, you know, who would you like to go see? Yeah. I mean, I think for the thing, the, the person I listen to, the band I listen to the most, and I look forward to, forward to, they're not a Tulsa band necessarily at all, but it's Blackberry Smoke is probably the band I really, really love. Um, I've seen them in town a couple of times. I've seen them in Springfield and I saw them in Canes a couple of times and they were just great. I mean, it was just such, I love, I just love the, um, the way that they've updated the Southern rock country song, sound, you know, basically, 
they, when you can listen to them, you can hear aspects of Almond Brothers and Skinner and sometimes a little bit of Zeppelin. Um, some of the, the sort of the, the outlaw country stuff. And I just, it just all comes together. And I am such a big fan of Charlie Starr, um, his voice and his songs. I, I just really love that band. And so in terms of bands that I, you know, a band that I would always want to go out and see if they came to town, mm-hmm. they're, they're, uh, that would be Blackberry Smoke. Another band I really like, and I've seen a couple of times, who is the struts. I really, really like, um, you know, the, the struts are, you know, people say they're like a stone's queen knockoff or whatever. And in some ways they are, but you know, I was sort of, a, I, don't, I wouldn't say I was skeptical of them but when I first saw them. I was like, okay, we'll see what this is, but their singer, um, their vocalist really just won me over. It's just had so much energy and they were so fun. I mean, I, I would urge anybody, I saw them at Canes and I saw them in Oklahoma city once and I would urge anybody who gets a chance to see the struts to go see them. Even if you're like, it's not really my thing. Cause it's just a fun, he's, um, they have such a great front man and they have, they have a, a bunch of good songs and it's just, you leave there like energized. It's fun. You know, it's just like, it's, it, it makes me, when I see a band like that, it makes you glad that you went out to a concert instead of going, you know, I'm old. Right? <laughs> you get tired. You're just like, I'm not, you know, you're just sort of like, I could be home in bed and you see some of these shows and just like, you know, whatever. You're just sort of like running out of gas mentally with it. And, but when you see a band like the struts, it's just, it was, it was, it just makes you feel young again. I just am, uh, yeah, a huge, a huge fan of them. Yeah, I'll check them out, definitely. Um, well, mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for an hour of your time, uh, you know, for sharing some stories. Uh, I hope people listening to this go read the book or go listen to the book uh, and start listening to back to, you know, some old classic rock music because it is just unbeatable in my opinion. Um, and yeah, I mean, is so how can people find you what, what are the social media stuff or website how can they how can they get in touch yeah best way is probably twitter i'm really active on twitter so it's at greg renoff my first name and my last name together uh i'm on facebook as well you can find me at greg renoff and uh you know i do a little, little instagram stuff but really twitter is my twitter is my thing and so um yeah reach out i also wrote another book more recently on record producer ted templeman who produced van halen as i mentioned and so that book is out as well so if people are van halen fans or like doobie brothers fans or just interested in how records are made ted so ted and i worked on the book and he, he you know walked us through all the records he made from what a fool believes by the doobie brothers to van halen's jump to you know he worked with bet midler and he worked with all these huge linda ronstadt so it's kind of a really cool records industry story but also uh, how hits are made so if you're interested in that, I, people uh, should check that book out too. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. let's get out of this COVID thing, man. I'm done with it, man. I am so done. I can't tell you. I, uh, I'm uh, over it. A guy that I'm kind of like been keeping my eye on, it's name's Chris Kingfish Ingram. He's like blues kind of guy. Yeah. He's 22. And for his 22nd birthday, he did like a YouTube live thing. And it's just so good. It's just an hour of his time, basically, if he's just on stage with his band playing to nobody uh, on YouTube Live. And so Chris Kingfish is his name? Yeah, just, yeah, Kingfish Ingram is his name. Cool. Um, I'll check him out for he, sure. He was supposed to play in Tulsa, um, but obviously COVID. So, uh, yeah, he's from Clarksdale, I think, Mississippi, maybe. Um, but just, yeah, he's very, very talented. Oh, okay, cool. So I'm going to check it out right now. Yeah, he's, he's good. But yeah, I uh, really appreciate your time. Um, for everyone listening, I'll post all the links down below. You go check out Greg's stuff. And yeah, we'll catch you next episode. Cheers. Anytime, man. Anytime. Enjoyed it so much. Have a great night, okay? Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. 
Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.